was, Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns to the earth? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, Will our souls survive? And we're talking over the last few weeks about the survival of our souls. Jesus knew exactly what was at stake. Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? You can accomplish great things and everything else, but you lose your soul. You've lost it all. In fact, Jesus said this, Do not fear the man who can destroy the body, but fear the man who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. So we're reminded by Jesus what's at stake. And we're reminded by Scripture that we are at war for our soul. It'll be clearly identified today that there is a force of good that's seeking to save our soul. And there's a force of evil that's seeking to destroy our soul. But here's what we've got to do, brothers and sisters. We've got to wake up to the war that's going on around us. It's almost to me like American Afghanistan. I was eating breakfast with a friend, James Straub, who's in the Air Force this week. And uh, James is talking about how, despite the fact he had been overseas deployed before, he was beginning to, to act his life like there wasn't a war going on. Until last week, he was interrupted by the death of a friend that only had two, ma- two weeks left in his deployment that was killed by a roadside bomb. And guys, if I can be honest, there are days that I don't think about America being at war. Be more honest, there are weeks. Probably there have been months where basically I pretend in my nice, comfortable world right here that America is not at war. Now, here's our analogy. I think for too many of us as Christians in our nice, comfortable Christian world, we are not awake to the fact that we are at war. And that Satan is coming at us with everything he's got. Last week, we talked about a lot of subtle things that he comes after us with. One is just the speed of life. It's not conducive for good soul life. I think if you probably talk to the Lindermans, they could tell you one thing that makes the spiritual life more important often in Africa is their pace of life may not match what our pace of life is, what they're exposed to. Uh, One thing we mentioned last week was, do you have a stuck accelerator? Anybody admitted you had a stuck accelerator? I do, man. I mean, I just want it on the floorboard 24 hours a day, man, getting as much done as I can. Not healthy. And guys, we live in a world where we got to do more and more. Even in your car, you know, while you're sort of blasting it to get across town. How many of us not only go fast, but we multitask while we're doing it? And so while I'm driving my car, I probably got a cup of coffee or a Coke beside me. You know, I'm probably adjusting the radio to what I want to, you know, listen to. You know, I'm probably also talking on the cell phone. And uh, if you really multitask, some of you girls put makeup on on the way while you're doing all of that. Anybody guilty in here? Or some of us guys, you know, we use our razor along the way. Just just eat. We're so busy. And guys, that is just a picture of the kind of life that we live. Because everything in our culture has been upped. It takes more time. We talked last week about college football. More and more time in our life. We talked about youth sports. More and more time in our life. We could talk about the business world. You know, where years ago, maybe the husband could, could work and the wife could stay at home. Less and less of that. And not only do both work, but now you've got to put more and more hours in to keep up in our culture where the economy is so bad. 
You go to weddings, and it's more and more and more. Those of you who started back school this week, you know, it's more and more days added to the school calendar, more and more homework that you've got to do. It just is overcoming us. And in the midst of this, we're given so many choices. It, 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 it's just mind-blowing. Anybody old enough to remember ancient days when we had three TV networks? Anybody remember that? It was an amazing thing, you know. And you actually, if you wanted to change channels, had to get up from your couch and walk over and turn a knob. That was before the days of children. I mean, you had to, you had to actually turn. And, and now, guys, how many channels do we have? You may have, you know, Dish TV where you've got almost a thousand channels at your disposal. It's more and more and more. And even the choices when it comes to going and getting a soft drink. Years ago, it was simple enough that if your friend was going to the store, you could say, would you buy me a Coke? I mean, Coke was just a universal term. It could mean Pepsi, Coke, Mountain Dew, very, but you could just say Coke. But now, have you noticed all the choices you have? Anybody been to Zaxby's lately? <laughs> I mean, have you seen that machine, you know? All those buttons, you can do Coke or you can do Diet Coke. You pick Diet Coke, you can do Diet Coke or Coke Zero. If you pick Diet Coke, well, then you have a choice, you know, of cherry or vanilla or what. I mean, it's crazy. And guys, all these choices are a good thing. But here's what's happening. We have so many time demands. We have so many choices. We have so much going on in our life that the part of us that's eternal is beginning to suffer because these choices crowd out God. I mean, you just watch it. Many of us grew up in churches where we were quite literally taught that if you didn't go to church three times a week, you were going to hell. Anybody grow up in a church like that? All right, some of you raise your hands very proudly, okay? We, we, we heard that message. Now, today, that is hilarious. I mean, obviously, today, we sure don't believe what we were growing up in, all right? We don't. And, and, and you know, here's what I want to say to you. I don't believe any longer if you don't go to church three times a week, you're going to hell. But I do believe if some of us don't start feeding our souls more consistently in church and Bible study, we're going to go to hell. Because what Satan wants to do is he wants to crowd it out of your life so that everything else comes first and everything spiritual comes second. And before long, man, you are in trouble. And that's why I want to introduce you to a new word this morning. It's a word that my buddy James Straub from the Air Force introduced me to. We were talking about all these things. He said, buddy, what you're talking about is people need to learn to re-vector. Say that word with me. Re-vector. I was so mesmerized by the word. I got back to the office. I tried to find it in a dictionary. I actually even went on the computer and tried to find it. And the word actually, it's not in the dictionaries yet. The word vector is, the word vector means the direction of an airplane or a missile. Re-vector means you try to change that direction. You realize, okay, I'm going in this direction. Man, my life's crowded. I didn't mean to go away from God. I didn't want to be where I am spiritually, but I, I need to re-vector. I need to change that. In fact, there, there are two definitions here that James gave me from the military of how re-vector works. One is this. You're maintaining speed, but changing direction. For some of us here, you know, we're, we're, we're leading life at a pretty nice speed. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is we're off just a few degrees. 
You know what happens there. If you're off just a few degrees in the long term, way out there, you're off a long ways. And so some of us, you know, we don't need to slow down in life. We simply need to change some of our course direction. But for others, we need of us, we need to maintain direction, but we need to change speed. Some of us are the other end of what I've talked about spiritually. You're involved in so many Bible studies and so many committees and so much work, and you're at a breakneck speed that, you know, spiritually you may not survive. Because the Bible says you, you need something called a Sabbath. You need a break. The Bible talks about different seasons in your life. And so your idea here would be, you know what? I want to keep in the direction. It's right, but I need to change my speed a little bit. I love that word, revector. Say that with me, revector. So when you run into your friend at lunch today, they say, what happened at church? And you say, hey, I've learned a new word, revector. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> you guys look pretty excited about it. Well, I'm, I'm so glad I could help you, revector. Now, here's what we did last week. Last week, we tried to give each other a way to do that, all right? How do you change direction? And here's the formula we gave out. You need to bring some clarity about your life. What do you want said at your funeral? What should be the big rocks? What are the big things in your life you want to be remembered for? And then you're going to have to have some courage, guys. The way we're talking about living here is not the American norm. Mark that down. It's going to take some courage. And you'll never know if you have courage until it actually shows up on your calendar. All right? So that's the way we revector. Now, here's, though, what I'm a little bit afraid of is that when we hear these kind of things, you know, we come to church and, you know, we're sort of blasted about our schedule or we're challenged about our priorities. I think all those things need to happen. But if we're not careful, we begin to think, you know what? I tried that 10 years ago. I mean, I became a Christian 25 years ago, and I've been lukewarm now for 15 years. And, and maybe even some of you on your way home, Last Sunday, the thought was, man, don't let Buddy ever go on a sabbatical again. You know, this vacation time, y'all want to call it, was really bad because, man, he's preaching here. And you know what? I know he's right, but I don't think I could do it. My priorities have been so out of kilter so long. And I tried this again, and I failed. And I tried to stop this sin in my life, and I went right back into it. What do we do? Now, here's what I want you to see as we fight this battle. Here is Satan's weapon to keep you and me from changing. It's called accusation. You know, in fact, the Hebrew word for Satan in your Bible is the accuser. That's what he does. He wants to whisper those things in your ears. In fact, not only does he say it to you, he also says it to God. Look at this passage. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Incredible scene of the hope we have in Christ. For the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, here's how we have victory. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What's he saying? We have this accuser who's constantly before God saying bad things about us. 
constantly whispering in your ear, you're not worthy, you're too crummy, you sin too much. I talked to two people this week. One said to me, you know, buddy, I do skip church a lot. And the reason I skip church a lot is because I'm so guilty, I just really can't go. Another said to me, you know, for years and years, I wanted to live for God. But basically, I thought to myself, you're too sorry. I mean, you've done too many really bad things. No way you can turn your life around. Guys, listen to me. That didn't come from your mind. That came from the mind of Satan. Because that's what he wants to believe. And that's what he's good at. Now, I want to take you to a story in just a moment that I've never really noticed. It's an Old Testament story, but it's a powerful story. And let me sort of give you the scene. We've got God behind his judgment seat. God is the judge. And we have Joshua, at least that's his name, Joshua the high priest, a different Joshua than normal Joshua we talk about. He is before the judgment of God. So there's the beginning of our scene, God and Joshua. Now, standing beside Joshua, speaking to God, is Satan, the accuser. Standing on the other side, in the passage we look at, he'll be called an angel. But if you read the book of uh, Zechariah very closely, most scholars think that this guy standing on the other side of Joshua, on the other side of Satan, is a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. It's really Jesus. And so we've got the accuser, and we've got Jesus, we've got God, and we've got Joshua. And the same scene we saw in Revelation plays out here in this passage in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Look at that with me. It's a fascinating scene. Can't believe I missed it this long. Then the angel showed me, that says Joshua, most translations say Joshua, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's hand making, here's his job, accusations against Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I love this, I, the Lord, reject your accusations. Satan, yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuked you. So the Lord rebuked Satan. I'm not believing these accusations. Keep keep on looking. This man, Joshua, is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Yes, it's been a bad situation, but God has snatched him up out of it. That's Bible language, even through the New Testament. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood before the angel. So he's dirty, you know. He's not looking right. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, They shall also place a turban on his head. Now, the turban that the high priest wore was a reminder of what he was to be. It had these words on it that said, Holiness to God. And now Joshua's become holy again. And look at how the passage ends. It says then, So they put clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. And then he says this. One more slide there. I will let you walk among those, these others standing here. Now, what does that mean? I think what he's saying to Joshua is, in your new robes, 
You can walk among the heavenly beings. You've got that kind of power. So you see the scene. We've got God. We've got Joshua standing before him, and he is dirty. His robes are smeared. He is sinful, and Satan's want to rub it in. So Satan's making the accusations. And yet, there on the other side is Jesus saying, no, we want to reclothe him. And there's God saying, I'm telling you what, Satan, I'm not listening to your accusations. I know what it looks like, but that's not the way it's going to be like. I reject them. I rebuke them. And guys, I want to tell you, that is what is going on in our life. What is Satan's target? Let me tell you this. Satan's target is your heart. What he wants to do is to destroy your heart. I mean, Satan is so good. Great day he's good. Listen to this about sin. You know, when, when Satan's tempting you with sin, what does he say to you? You can get by with it. God doesn't really care. Nobody will notice. Who cares? Nobody. I mean, he, he says to you, when you're thinking about sinning, you'll get by with it. When you do sin, then he changes his message. You will never get by with it. Your life is smeared, smudgeoned, dirty for the rest of eternity. You're stuck. And so what does Satan want to do? What's his goal with our heart? Satan's goal is to um, give us a defeated heart. So, so here's what happens. Satan wants to doubly abuse me. First of all, he tricks me into sin, and so I sin. Second, he wants to keep me in guilt so long that I never really live for God. He wants to give you defeat, despair, depression, because he wants you to believe the accusation that he's making. You can't do it. You're not holy enough. You be a leader in that church, forget it. You become faithful to God, you tried that before and you blew it. You stop that addiction in your life, oh my goodness, how many times have you failed at that? You, you, you want to overcome lukewarmness? My goodness, buddy, you've been lukewarm all your life, man. I mean, I see other people out there that are really fired up, you know. I see the Lindermans, man, they'll give their life to go to Africa. But that's not me. And that's what Satan's saying to you. Because he wants your heart to be defeated. In fact, here's what's happening, guys. We got, we got two uh, extremes about guilt. One extreme over here, and I hear this among Christian people a lot today. I should never feel guilty. And if the preacher preaches a tough sermon, you might complain to me and say, you're just making me feel guilty. Please don't make me feel guilty. I shouldn't feel guilty. Nobody should ever feel guilty. Listen to me. Guilt is a gift from God. You are made to feel guilty so that you would change. And so Satan wants this, this crazy spiritual babble we got today that nobody ought to ever feel guilty is a lie. Guilt was meant like a hot touch on a stove that's burning. It was meant to send you so you get away from it. So let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're out sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, you need to feel guilty. If you're out getting drunk on the weekends, you need to feel guilty. If you're lukewarm for God, you need to feel guilty. Now, that's one extreme. Now, the other extreme from you should never feel guilty is Satan's extreme, which is you should always feel guilty. 
What Satan wants to do is take something that actually is a gift from God so that you would re-vector your life. What Satan wants to do is take that and twist the knob up long enough that you stay guilty forever. And so write these things down. What's a defeated heart look like? It has excessive guilt and doubt. Or you might put it this way, ongoing guilt and doubt. You're stuck there. And guys, that's the work of Satan. He wants you stuck in your guilt. In fact, we have a great illustration of this in the New Testament. I mean, we, we think about we lived in the most goofed up, screwed up times ever. And people are more perverted today than they've ever been. I don't know. Just read your Bible. It's pretty messed up. Oh, really? It really is. Uh, you go to the book of 1 Corinthians and the church has got a problem. They got this man in the church who the Bible says is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, that's weird. Uh, does that mean he sleep with his mom? I mean, I like to believe it's his mother-in-law. That, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable, okay? But for some reason, this dude is sleeping with her. And Paul writes this letter and says, here's the problem. The church is putting up with it. The church is okay with it. And so he says, the church, you need to discipline this guy. You need to, to um, actually, the word is, cast him over to Satan so his heart will be pricked and he'll come back to God. And the church does, okay? So we had this one extreme, like, you know what? Doesn't matter what you do, you know, sleep with. But then here's what, by the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, now the church won't let up on this dude. I mean, he has repented. He's gotten back on track. And if you listen to chapter 2, let me go to 2 Corinthians 2, about verse 6. Paul says to these guys, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul is afraid that this guy is going to live in excessive ongoing guilt. I mean, he's done something bad, but he's repented. And he's saying to the church, you need to forgive him. You need to comfort him. And then one more line here, I think. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And guys, that's what the church is about. Yes, should we inflict a little guilt here and there? Yes. But here's what we do. When somebody repents, we reaffirm them, we love them, we comfort them. That's not time to say, oh, man, we can't get out of our mind what you did, man. You've been sleeping with your, your father's wife. I mean, that's, we're going to remember that one for a long, long time around this church. You will never serve the Lord's Supper, bud. You will never. No. And so can you see how Satan used it both? Either he gets you to a point where you never feel guilty about anything, or he gets you to a point where you just stay on ongoing guilt that never stops. It's both used by Satan. So to what are our answers, okay? First, here's your defense. Jesus, your advocate. God has given you a court-appointed attorney, and he's not a bad one. He's a perfect one. And his name is Jesus Christ, and he wants to represent you. And listen to what he does. First John chapter 1, verse 9. Look at this passage. My dear friends, I write this to you so that you will not sin. God's plan A for you is that you don't sin. Anybody doing very well in plan A? Okay. So then he says this. I write you so you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate who is standing before the Father for us. I love that passage. 
Look at a couple more passages, how God thinks about you. Philippians 1, 6. He knows you're not perfect. Here's the, I'm certain that God, who began this good work within you, will continue this work until it finally is finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. What's God saying? You know, don't get excessive guilt in your life. God's still working on you. Or look at this passage. It always sort of amazes me from Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus looks at this crazy, you know, bumbling group of disciples. And he says, just like us, you are the light of the world. I believe you can do it. He's our advocate. And that's the role that Jesus has played for a long time. Now, let's just go through the scripture for a moment. Okay, let's go to the courtroom once again. Now we have Abraham before the judgment seat of God. The accuser, Satan says, God, you can't use Abraham. He is a liar. And God says, no, I rebuke you, Satan. He is the father of faith. Let's bring somebody else before the court. Rahab. Satan says about Rahab, do you realize who you're dealing with, God, here? Do you realize how sorry this woman is? She is a prostitute. And Jesus says, oh, no, no. She is an instrument of God. Let's bring David up before the courtroom. Here's David. And Satan's got lots of accusations used here. And so he piles them on. God, do you know that this guy is an adulterer? That this guy is a murderer? That he's covetous? And God says, oh, no, no, no. I'm his advocate. That's not what I see. I see that he is the man after God's own heart. Let's bring Peter up before the judgment. Peter, my goodness. The accuser says, Peter, God could never use you. At Jesus' most difficult moment, you wouldn't even stand up for him. You wouldn't even admit that you knew him. You're a denier, and you'll always be a sorry man. You know what Jesus says? Shame on you, Satan. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this man who denied me, and 50 days later, I'm going to put him in front of 100,000 people, and I'm going to let him be the first guy to preach the gospel. Now, the question this morning is, who are you listening to? The accuser or the advocate? Because let's put one more person on this spot. One more person. You. Me. And here we are before the judgment of God. Can I ask you this morning? I want you to think with me, okay? Is that all right? I know you enjoyed the new, the new word, so maybe you enjoy this, all right? I'd like, I'd like you to think, okay? Here it is. What is the accuser saying about you? What deep, dark secret can he say about you? What past sin can he say about you? What failure can he bring up? I guarantee he is. And not only is God hearing it, but you're hearing it. What is it? Because this may be what's keeping you back from living for God. Because you're listening to his accusations. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you. What is the advocate saying about you? What is God saying about you? Oh, he knows about all the trash in your life, but that's not what he sees. What is he saying? He's saying, you are my beloved son. I could use you, even your failures, for my glory. Get over this, my friend. I'll give you a whole new change of clothes, and you will be cleansed before God. So I'm asking you this morning, I know there are two voices in your head. I got them too. What is the accuser saying to you? And what is the advocate saying to you? Now, here's the choice we got here this morning. The choice is, who are you going to listen to? 
It, it, I, I don't care how fired up Buddy gets. I don't care how great your Sunday school class was. I don't care how convicted your family becomes. If you keep listening to the accuser, you're not moving. And he can take a really convicting Sunday and he can just make you feel doubly guilty. And then he's done even more damage. But listen to me. If you would listen to the advocate, the one who loves you, your greatest cheerleader, the one who looks at you and sees past your sin and sees who you can be for God, then something great could happen. Now, what's the first step? What's the first step to get this moving? Let me tell you what it is. So I, I need to revector. I need to change. Here's the first step. It's confession. All right? Now, what does the word confession mean? It really doesn't have anything to do with sin. It simply means to agree with God. Now, there's two things I think you need to agree with God about to really start changing. First of all, you need to agree with God about your sin. The worst thing you can do is try to smooth over this and act like you really hadn't done anything bad and I should never feel guilty. My friends, listen to me. If you've sinned, admitted it. You know, you know what God can't deal with? God cannot deal with you and I being fake. That's our problem in church is we learn how to be fake. God can't deal with that. What he can deal with mercifully is if you would be willing to confess your sin. Now, second, not only must you agree with God about your sins, you need to agree with God about his grace and power. You need to confess that, God, I think you could take this mess of me and you could do something really wonderful with me. I agree not with what the accuser is saying about me. I agree with what Jesus is saying about me. And, guys, that's when change can really start happening in our life. That's how you start revectoring. Look at a couple passages real quickly. First John chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Nice new robe. Look at this proverb, what he says about confession. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Man, I'm telling you what it does. It'll eat you up. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So, what's the first step today? Get honest. Look at what's going on in your life. Agree with God about the bad stuff. But more than that, agree with God about what He can do in your life. We call this revectoring. Let me go. Let's do better. You know what the Bible calls this? Repenting. All it simply means is I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm making a course correction to follow Jesus. And you know what the Bible would call it? If all of us start revectoring and all of us start repenting, you know what the Bible's can call this? It can call it revival. And so what I'm, I'm pulling for this morning, praying for today, is that we learn to revector, change the rest, that we learn to repent, and that among us a revival will break out. God, could it, God, could it happen? Uh, we know our culture's difficult. We know God's getting crowded out of our schools, crowded out of our lives, crowded out of the public square. And we could be the ones to go, you know what? Not happening in my life. Not happening. I've gone that, I'm believing God. Now, if the worship team would come on up here, let's prepare to sing together. And while, we, while they do that, let me, let me share a story with you. 
And this is an incredible story about the famous reformer Martin Luther. I don't know if you know much about Martin Luther, but not only was he an incredible theologian, but he also was an incredible emotional guy who had intense battles with Satan. And so finally, he's in this castle in Germany called Wartburg Castle. And Satan, the accuser, starts coming before him and reminding the great preacher Martin Luther of all the mistakes of his life. And Luther finally writes a friend, I do see myself insensible and hardened, a slave to sloth, rarely, alas, praying, unable even to utter a groan for the church, while my untamed flesh burns with devouring flame. He's feeling it. And then in this castle, Luther has a dream. And in this dream, the accuser Satan appears. And he takes a scroll out and brings the scroll down. And the scroll has a listing of every sin Satan knows about Luther from his birth until this day. And Luther is overwhelmed in despair in the middle of his dream. And finally, he wakes up and he's angry. And he says this to Satan. He says, Satan, not only is everything on your list true about me, there is more. There are other sins that you don't know about that only God and I know about. So let me tell you, Satan, the list is actually longer. But let me tell you what we're going to put at the bottom of the list. This is a man cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's clap, guys. That's good stuff. So, so, so Luther said, this man's cleansed by Jesus. He takes his inkwell and he throws it across the room at Satan. And just as the Bible promises, if you'll resist the devil, he will flee from you. And he got out of that room. And I'm saying to you today, what you know bad about you, what Satan knows bad about you, it's true. It's probably even worse than that. You know what I'm saying? But here's the really good news. The good news is you could be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. How do you start? By first of all, just admitting where you are and also agreeing with God that he can cleanse you and that he can change you.